0: When we used to live in Colorado, we would take our middle school students to a church camp in Wyoming. And and I don't know about you, but I grew up going uh, to church camp when I was a kid, and and we thought our weeks of church camp were awesome. You know, we had all kinds of fun and exciting things like a pool and a lake and kickball and whatever else we thought was really cool. We would take these students um, to a working ranch in Wyoming, Okay, where, where middle school students would do things like uh, archery, tomahawk throwing, uh, black powder rifles. They'd shoot twenty they They'd do vaulting on a horse. I mean, all kinds of things that were not available to me when I was a middle school student, that's for sure. And that, that was probably wise of our leaders. But um, the pinnacle of this week of camp... Is that the the uh, the staff at the ranch would put on a rodeo for our students, and, and you might hear that, and you might think, "Oh, yeah, that sounds really exciting." But but for a bunch of city kids from Denver, this was a big deal, okay, and they really got into this rodeo. It was a lot of fun for them. And, uh, and, you know, they would, uh, they'd have them lassoing uh, some, you know, some uh, calves and stuff like that, and they'd do their shooting tricks while they're riding and all that kind of stuff. Well, kind of the high point of this night was they would have some of the adult leaders wrestle a bull. And... And, and you know how this goes, right? They come into our staff meeting, we're doing things where, you know, and they say, we need like five of you to wrestle a bull on Thursday night. And I'm like, ooh, I will, I will. That sounds great. What is it? You know, like, what do I do? And so, so we go into the, uh, to the, the big area where the rodeo is held and they give us each a lasso. <laughs> That's it. Just five of us in this big area with a 1,200 pound death machine. And we are looking at it and its huge horns and everything else just with lasso. So so we kind of start our half-hearted attempts to get the thing. Because we know at least we need to rope it first. I mean, that's about all that we really know at this point. So we kind of, you know, like throw the <laughs> rope at it and then run away and stuff. And this, this goes on for a little while. Well, finally, we get, two of us get the thing uh, lassoed. And, and so now it's time to come in and tackle it and take it down. Well, they told us before we went in, they gave us a little lesson. You know, the way you, in case any of you need to know, in case you find yourself this afternoon in this scenario, I hate for you not to be educated, okay? The way to take a bull down is if you can grab its horns and you can turn its head and then fall on top of it, and then you guys can frolic in the park and sing, and it's awesome, okay? The problem is that when you... Go and you're staring at this beast of an animal. It's just hard to remember your training, okay? <laughs> so, so two of the people have uh, have it lassoed, and three of us are doing our best to psych ourselves up to go and jump on the death machine. And so, um, so here we are. You know, we kind of we're like, okay, one, two, three, and then and then all of us are chicken and we can't do it. And so we have a picture here. I brought a couple pictures, okay? So, this is uh, my friend who's uh, on the left in the gray shirt. Um, this was, he was the first one that jumped and hit the bull, and the bull just sent him flying. So, this is the shot right before he gets tossed up. And then there are another friend, I'm the one in the hat in the middle. Now, there's another friend and I, we're both about 6'5, and uh, we jump onto it. And my friend is punching it <laughs> and, and saying things that I won't repeat here, okay? suffice it to say that didn't calm the bull down at all i'm not sure if that's what he meant to do but it didn't really work so what we're what's happening here is um is you know he's holding on to the horns and i'm just kind of on the bull and uh and i think well i mean if i were if i were wrestling one of you right like i would i would try to well i'd probably try to hit you from behind but when you weren't looking but but I think I'll, I'd probably just try to lift a leg out and, and take it down. I mean, that makes sense, right? So here I am over top of the bull thinking if I can just grab a hold of this leg, I'll flip him out. Except that's the wrong direction, you know? And so here we are kind of over the thing and it actually works. And we flip the bull back. Now here's the next picture, okay? You don't, uh, oh wait, did we, did we skip a picture? Okay, there we go. Yep, here we go. We'll go to the, the last one. You can't see me anymore. Um, You can kind of see the red hair sticking out from under the bull. That's my friend. And the two of us were successful in pulling the bull off of its legs and onto us. And so he still has a hole of the head, and I have a hole of one horn. And it's kind of like a movie where the the bull really doesn't enjoy this very much. And so he is trying to stab back to get us to let go, all the while I'm watching this horn of of death. coming at me. So we get, you know, we get done with this, so at this point you can start to see all the ranch hands empty out because they realize we're going to die if they don't do something about it. And <laughs> so they lift the bowl off of us a little bit, they pull us out. And and of course, you know, we come out of the pen and and we're, you know, all the students are cheering and my wife is bawling and you know, it's just awesome, right? And it was just a great day. But <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons in this experience. The the last time I ever wrestled a bull, both the first and the last time. Um, But one of the things as I look back on that, and as I look back at my life, one of the things that I realize that a lot of times it's the moments that have pushed me out of my comfort zone that have really molded and shaped me into who I am today. Okay, it's a lot of the moments where we feel completely overwhelmed, or we feel in a new situation, or, or we just don't feel like we're in control anymore. It's most often those moments that really shape us and form us into the person we are. Now we're in a series uh, about Esther, uh, and if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, uh, Randy's been talking. This is the third week in a series about Esther. And uh, Esther's kind of an interesting book in the Bible. Okay, it's the only book in the 66 books of the Bible that doesn't mention God's name at all. And people throughout the years have kind of wondered about that. You know, well, what's the, what are we doing here if we have a book of the Bible that doesn't even have God's name in it? But what I would say is this, while God's name might not be mentioned in the book of Esther, I think his fingerprints are all over it. And we look at the story of Esther, and, and I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes I think we romanticize this story. And we look at it like it's a fairy tale. You know, we think it's this rag to riches story of this young, beautiful Jewish girl. And, and she finds true love with the king. And, and then she's able to save her people along the way. And, you know, you can hear the writers at Disney making a you know, fairy tale about it. And they'll expand Magic Kingdom and give her own exhibit and stuff. The problem is that that's just not entirely accurate on the story of Esther. In fact, it's, it's pretty much not true at all. Okay, if you've been here these last couple weeks, you know the story of Esther is really about this, this drunken king who, who wants his wife, the queen, to come and parade herself around in front of all of his drunken buddies. And when she won't do that, she gets kicked out. They go looking for all the young women around the empire, probably ripping many of them from their homes. And Esther comes into the harem, goes through 12 months of beauty treatments, 12 months of beauty treatments to get her ready for a one-night stand with the king. And if she impresses him, then the big prize is she gets to be a part of the harem while she will spend the rest of her life doing whatever she is told. Now, fortunately for Esther, she, uh, she ends up as the queen. Um, she ends up pleasing the king to the point that she replaces the queen, and that's where we're gonna pick up the story here, okay? We're gonna be in Esther uh, chapter two, verse 19 is where we are, Esther chapter two, verse 19. If you have one of the Bibles and the seatbacks in front of you, that's page 355. Uh, Esther chapter two, verse 19, and here's what it says, okay? When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality. Now, let me stop there. When, when it says that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, that implies that he has some kind of royal position, okay? Probably because Esther has been elevated to the status of queen. Now, any of her family, which is just her cousin Mordecai, they, they get, you know, royal positions. So he's sitting at the gate. Um... But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Now, isn't this just every Jewish girl's dream, probably, right? To have to hide her background and her nationality, to become some mean, you know, drunken king's plaything or whatever. And and now she's queen, and she's blending in as, as a good Stepford wife. Okay, here's Esther doing whatever she's told. And I I would guarantee that in the harem, there was probably one rule that they went over, over, and over, and over again. Do not be like Queen Vashti, okay? Do not think you have an opinion around here. Do not think that you get to say no to the king. Do not think you speak your mind. You do whatever you are told, and you'll be able to stay around here, okay? So we'll see soon why she's hiding her nationality. In verse 21, it says During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Uh, but Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Now kings in these days would keep kind of a record of benefactors. What they wanted to do was to remember who had, who had served them well, who had done good things for them, okay? And there were a couple reasons that you want to do that, all right? You would like it to be known. If somebody is going to foil an assassination plot and give you information, you kind of want to reward them, Right? Because hopefully that'll inspire other people to want to tell you secrets as well. The other thing is you would hate for somebody who had helped you out and foiled some plot to be mad because they didn't get rewarded, and then to plot, with, plot against you the next time. But in the midst of this, Mordecai's deed is recorded, but he doesn't get any reward for what he's done. Now, I wonder how that will play for us nowadays. Okay, I wonder in your office what it's like if you do something good in the office and nobody notices. Okay, how do we do when we don't get credit for the good things that we've done or any of the things we've done? We don't typically take it that well, right? Because we have this sense of entitlement. We think that everybody in the world owes us something because we're just good enough and smart enough and whatever else, okay? We have you know, whole graduations that are happening here in this community for U of I this weekend and other college towns across the country where these graduates are gonna head out feeling like, I got a good education, I am owed, I deserve a great job that pays a ton with a corner office and a company car and a phone and all the benefits I can imagine, five weeks of vacation, you know, whatever it is, we think that we are due something. Okay, I, uh, I detasseled for a couple summers in high school. How many of you at some point along the way have done detasseling? Okay, can I always tell you're in a Midwest crowd, right? Because we know what that is. When we lived in Colorado, people had no idea what that term even meant. But um, So it's hard work, a lot of hours, not a lot of pay. And I was detasseling one summer, and, and I was especially excited about getting a check at the end because I, I, I had all these different things I wanted to spend my very small amount of money on. So I was kind of doing you know, my facts and figures and trying to figure out how much that I would make and all of that. And, uh, and, and so, uh, when the check came, I had a pretty good idea of what it would be. I thought it would be right around 300 bucks. And, uh, and the check comes, and my eyes got this big. Because not only was the check more than what I thought it would be, it was like double what I thought it would be. And so, I went back to my calculations. I thought I must have made a mistake. And what I realized is I wasn't the one who made a mistake. They paid me double. To which, of course, I mean, I did the obvious thing. I thought, yes, you know, score. I mean, the good Lord hath blessed my hard work <laughs> and, my, and my toil and my labor. Um, well, my mother and I discussed it for a little while, and she had a different idea of how I would proceed after that. So, so when I sent my check back in, um, uh, I, got, I got the corrected check amount from them, and, uh, and they sent me a little thank you note with a $20 bill in it. Okay, and at the moment that I opened up the thank you note and saw the $20 bill, I was mad. I mean, here I was. I could have taken an extra $300 from them. Instead, I was honest and gave it back, and all they gave me was $20 and a thank you note. And I thought, man, I deserve so much more than this. And you got to be thinking, what is going through Mordecai's mind when he doesn't get what he thinks he deserves? And what I think is interesting is that, that this event being recorded But him not getting a reward at the time is going to play a huge part in how God uses his story. So let's continue. We'll we'll start at uh, chapter 3 here, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor. Now, somewhere in here, five years go by. Okay, Esther becomes the queen in the seventh year of Xerxes' reign, and then the events that we're about to look at here happen in the twelfth year. So somewhere along the way, five years have passed. So we don't know that it's right after Mordecai's uh, deeds that Haman gets elevated, but we know that at some point um, it happens. And and this is one of the things that I I just love about the book of Esther. Okay, while I fully believe the book of Esther is historical fact, it is God communicating with his people what he did in the lives of his people thousands of years ago, one of the things I think is so neat about this book is it is fact and history presented in story form. You can almost think of of young men sitting around a campfire with, or old men sitting around a campfire with younger men, or or older mature women telling the younger women these stories about the incredible things that God did to save his people from from near destruction. And and, and a part of this is very early on when Mordecai is introduced in 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 the book uh, Mordecai is listed as being a Jew. And so all of God's people would have heard this and gone, yeah, you know, here we go. I mean, we've got our story. It's going be, to be great. Well, when Haman is listed as the Agagite, people would have gone, ooh. In fact, let's try it here, okay? Haman, the Agagite. Oh, see, you guys are excited about this. I knew you would be. Um, Maybe a little brief history lesson might help us here, okay? Uh, and this, I just had a refresher course on this about a month ago. I've been doing a Bible, a chronological Bible reading plan, which has just been awesome. So reading the, reading the Bible in the uh, in the order that the events happen instead of just the order of the books. And I found it on Uversion.com. If you haven't spent any time on Uversion.com, then you need to. It is an awesome site. It's in your notes there. Uh, Uversion is a website that has the Bible and a ton of different translations, and it has a bunch of Bible reading plans. And one of the best parts of the plans is that it syncs up across all of your technological devices, okay? So if you have a Blackberry or an Android phone or an iPhone or whatever you can do your rival reading plan it all syncs together okay so it's great well uh, so God's people throughout the Old Testament are known as the Hebrews or the Jews or the Israelites and God's people uh, have this enemy his name's King Agag he's king of the Amalekites the Amalekites are these nomadic people kind of wander around and and uh, take shots at other nations and stuff well they have kind of the dubious distinction of being known As the first group of people that attack the Israelites, after God has brought his people out of Egypt, brought them through and kind of establishing them as a nation, the Amalekites come and they attack them. So in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, God promises there will be justice. I have not forgotten my people. There will be a day uh, where where revenge happens and stuff. Well, in 1 Samuel 15, that's when God commands that of Saul. God tells Saul... I want you to go in and, and I want you to wipe out the Amalekite people, all of them, men, women, children, all their livestock, everything. I want you to go and wipe out this people. And Saul goes to war with them, but he spares the king, King Agag, and some of the best of the sheep and the cattle. And this is the event, really, that, that, that uh, God begins to reject Saul as king. And, and this is what ushers in David's time as king and Jesus comes to the line of David. So this is how this all fits together. Well, enemies of Israel became known as the Agagites after this. Different enemies at different times. And that's why when, this is, when, when Haman is identified this way, it brings a ton of baggage to the table in the story. Okay, in the purest sense, the story of Esther honestly didn't need to happen. And what I mean by that is if Saul had been faithful to God when God said, go and wipe out these people, then you wouldn't have had this figure that everybody identifies with and wants to take down uh, the nation of Israel. And the Jews, God commands uh, in in the covenant with Moses, God says, you need to stay together. It's not going to be good if you get mixed up with other people groups and other nations and other empires. And when the Jews had a chance, they should have moved back to Jerusalem, but Mordecai and his family didn't. So with that as a backdrop, you kind of understand why Mordecai's going, there is no way I'm bowing down to this guy. This guy is an enemy of God, and there's no chance. So we skip a few verses here, but but what starts to happen is the rest of the court wants to know what's going on. They begin pressuring Mordecai, come on, just bow down, you know, come on, you're making this tough on everybody, just go and do what they ask. And, And Mordecai says no, so finally they go above his head, they go to Haman and they say, hey, why does it? Why do we all have to bow down to you, but that guy doesn't? And they say, is it because he's a Jew? And all of a sudden, Mordecai's secret and his heritage are out. So here's what happens. Verse five: When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing not only Mordecai, uh, uh, scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. That sounds fitting, right? I mean, one guy won't bow down to you, so instead of just punishing him, you're going to go after a whole people group. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pure, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell to the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Okay, now the, these pure, or the plural form is the purum, which you might hear about in the Old Testament and other places. But, but the Purim are these like clay dice, basically, that would have characters or numbers on them and they throw them out. It wasn't a gambling type thing like we use, uh, it, was, it, was, it was really divination. It was to find out what the will of the gods were. And so they decide that they're going to go ahead and they've set a date now because the dice say uh, of when they're going to try to exterminate the Jews. Now, now, get some ironies that are happening here. Okay? The covenant told God's people not to mix with other people groups. What'd they do? They disobeyed. God told Saul specifically to go and wipe out the Amalekites. What did he do? He disobeyed. And now God's people are at risk of being wiped out themselves. And what do they do? They call on, they they call for help, and who's gonna help them? Esther. This girl who she and her cousin have been hiding their nationality the entire time are going to use that very heritage to save God's people. So verse 8 says, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those uh, of all other people who do not, and, and who do not obey the king's laws. Is it not in the king's best interest it... It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver in the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. Now, you can almost feel uh, Haman's got, you know, he's working his, like, Jedi mind tricks, right? You know, like oh, it would not be good to tolerate these people any longer. We need to just wipe them all out. It's kind of like what we do to Randy in the office, you know, where I say, Randy, you know, when I speak in the main service again, you don't want me to speak on money for the third straight time. Or, you know, or I'll, we'll say, "You want Randy, you want to give everyone on the youth staff a Harley. That would be a really nice thank you gift for all the hard work we do. Or we say, Randy, you really want to pay off the mortgage on the building so we can build some family life facilities in the future. Actually, that one's his idea, but, uh, but still now let me take a little time out here real quick in my my role has shifted this year uh, from being our student minister to being our family life minister and I, I oversee the staff who work with birth through high school and i get two questions all the time so i thought i'd just take a quick chance to answer those okay the first question i get is how's the search going for our children's minister? we're looking for a candidate who will oversee our k through fourth grade ministry and the answer to that is our search is going very well uh, we've had over 50 resumes. Uh, we've brought uh, three candidates in for 24-hour interviews, and one of those candidates I'm going to go see here in a couple of weeks. So that, we're very happy. The, the second thing people ask all the time is, how can I help? Okay? And if that's you, there is a major way you can help us this summer. Jen Davidson, our interim children's director, needs help upstairs in our elementary ministry. And if you have... A month you can give, or a couple months, or even if you have a crazy work or a crazy vacation schedule this summer, you can send Jen an email and let her know when you are available and help at those times. All right? So if you want to help, you can get an email on the website, go and talk to Jen. They need help upstairs. All right? Let's come back to uh, Esther's story. So the king, verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews keep the money the king said to Haman and do with the people as you please Xerxes hands over his signet ring I mean this is the ring he used to stamp things and make things official essentially he gives over the power of the kingdom to do whatever Haman wants you almost get the idea that it's like fine whatever I do, you know I get so tired of petitions all the time and everybody's got their agenda and stuff just do whatever you want I remember I was playing basketball in middle school and I got a detention at one point and the detention kept me late and so I wasn't able to make it to basketball practice on time. When I got in for basketball practice, my coach said, you know, you're late. He was furious and, uh, and, and he said, uh, you need to just go run until I'm tired. And so, you know, I went and ran for probably like a whole 10 minutes or something and I came back and said, okay, coach, I'm tired now. Can I come and do practice? He said, no, you need to run until I get tired. <laughs> Not you, till I get tired of watching you. Now get out there and run some more, okay? Sometimes we just get annoyed with all the things that are coming in at us all the time. Now, now Haman gives this big exaggeration of what the plunder would be. If they kill all the Jews and they take all their stuff, he says it's going to be 10,000 talents added to the treasury, well, the, 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 uh, the tax revenue of the day in Persia was, was 14,000 talents. So it gives you an idea of what a huge amount that would be. That would be like us in our country, with a, uh, the tax revenue in 2010 was 2.1 trillion. So imagine if our country had a way to make another 1.5 trillion. At the same time, we'd probably find a way to spend 10 trillion or whatever, but, but that's still the, the, the reality of what's happening here. And the Bible tells us that the message went out in every language so that everyone could very clearly understand. And here's what it is. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day in the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, the copy of the text of the, of, of the edict was, uh, was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they'd be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Now imagine this being read in a public square somewhere. You know, for people, maybe many of whom can't read or don't know what's going on, and they hear destroy like oh and kill oh and and annihilate you know at some point you got to go okay how many how many descriptors do we need for what is going to happen here and then to plunder all of their goods And it's a really interesting scene here that after all this, I mean, Haman and Xerxes must have been exhausted here making a law that's just going to lead to the extermination of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. So what do they do? They call it beer 30. They sit down and they have a drink, right? I mean, because it's been a really long day of work for them. And it says that the city of Susa is bewildered. To me, that's one of the biggest understatements probably in the Bible. I mean, imagine for you, if, if a decree came down from our government That you are supposed to kill and plunder all of one type of people in your neighborhood. I mean, everybody in your neighborhood who practices one specific religion, you just kill. Or everybody from one particular ethnicity. Or all the Cardinal fans, you know. (laughs) But here's the thing, there's an aspect of this that I think I'd be remiss if I didn't point out. Because we read the book of Esther and other stories like it in the Bible. And I think we always come at it. I think 99% of the time we come at it from the same perspective. We put ourselves into the story, and we are either Esther or we are Mordecai. You know, we're either the the beautiful princess that's going to save everybody, or we're the Mordecai who has to kind of keep on keeping on in the midst of it. My question, though, is how much are you actually Haman in this story? I mean, how often is it that your actions are actually the ones that are hurtful to other people? Hear me very clearly, okay? You are not the protagonist in every story you're involved in. You are not always the the princess in the castle waiting for a knight in shining armor to come and save you. Sometimes you are are the one, the villain, who has put someone else in a cage you've created for them. You are not always the thief on the cross pleading for mercy at the 11th hour. Sometimes you are the mockers in the crowd, spitting and hurling insults. And I think all too often we miss completely our role in this. Okay, maybe some of you, maybe some of you today, are coming through a rough, rough time in your life. And what you need to hear is the message of Esther that you, that, you need to, that, that you need to endure, that God has a plan, that if you continue to live faithfully, God will take care of you. But I think far more of us need to, hurt, need to hear, stop hurting others. Stop being rude and cruel and vindictive to the people around us. Because sometimes we're mean to the people that we don't know that well, but I think most of the time we are the most awful to the people who love us the most. See, Esther is a story about someone who risked her life for her people. And Jesus is a story about someone who gave his life for his people. How will we live? How will we live in light of that? whether you have been Esther or you've been more like Xerxes, whether you have treated people like Mordecai treated people or you've treated people like Haman, the question is, how will you live in light of what's been done for you? You want to talk about entitlement? Let's look at Jesus on a cross who deserved none of what he got and yet he took everything. Or us, who deserved all of it and got none of it. How will we live in light of the grace that has poured out in our lives? There's a song by a band, Need to Breathe, and I love the chorus line of this song. It says, let us love like we were children. Make us feel like we're still living in a world I know that's burning to the ground. Give us time to beat the system. Make us find what we've been missing in a world I know that's burning to the ground.